Well, today we're coming back to this series of Paul um, writing this letter to the church at Philippi. This is kind of good because I can actually see my own reflection. And (laughs) not that I'm vain, but, you know, I kind of like it. Um, It's like a hologram speaking to me. The, this, Paul is writing to this letter to the church at Philippi, and again, we know he's under house arrest, and he keeps talking about joy, and he's trying to, to help them understand why he has joy, but he also wants them to understand how they can also have this same joy. It's not something that's special to him. It's something that, that God wants to give. But he, he, he has already talked about that his joy is in how God is using others, in what God is doing in other people's lives. And for him, it's a particular joy when he talks about the Philippians. And those of you who've done this, you know this. It is a particular joy that he's invested in these people. You know, he went to Philippi. He started the church. He's known some of these people from when they went from their life of not being Christians to being Christians. He's seen what's happened, how some of them have grown. And for him, that's incredible joy. And anybody, any of you who've ever done that, you know, you've invested in someone else's life. Maybe you helped bring them to Christ. Maybe you were a mentor, a disciple. Everything that happens in in their lives as they grow in their faith it's, it's a source of joy for you. And so, so Paul, Paul knows this. He, he loves these people. He wants them to, to succeed. He has joy in, in their growth, joy in their success. And, he, you know, that's one of the struggles that we have in our culture. If we're going to let, you know, our focus be on ourselves and that we only feel joy when we succeed, then we're always going to be limited. Paul is trying to, you know, help, help them understand that they are not only bringing him joy, but they can have that same joy if they take their eyes off themselves, their own success, their own happiness, their own spiritual growth, and they turn it Towards, towards others. The other thing that he talks about is that the spread of the gospel. He finds joy in the spread of the gospel. And we talked about that last week. We talked about why. why? Well, because he really believes the gospel is true. And you go, well, I really believe it too. But the other thing is that he has really experienced what the gospel said it would do in his life. He went from being, you know, grouchy, angry, you know, hateful, you know, Saul to this person who became like the apostle of the gospel of love and mercy and grace. He knows his whole life is no longer one of turmoil, even though his external life was way more tumultuous. When he was not a Christian, his life was pretty sad. It was pretty stable. He was a Pharisee. You know, he was, you know, he had a, you know, he had a good job. He probably was married and in Daw and very stable. But ever since he became Christian, ever since he got involved with that Jesus guy, externally his life is crazy. 
you know, he's been thrown into prison. He's been traveling all over. Sometimes he doesn't have, doesn't know where his next meal is coming from. You know, he's been shipwrecked. All of these things have happened in his life. He's been, you know, stoned and left for dead. All of these things have happened in his life. But he's never had more joy. It's weird. But it's because he's really experienced what what the gospel says the gospel will do to us when we have faith in Jesus Christ. And so anytime the gospel is spread, he has joy, not because, hey, my side's winning. That's not what he's talking about. He has joy because he knows someone else is experiencing what he's already experienced. He knows someone else is having that same love that same peace, that same joy, that same faith. So he loves it. But he also gets that the gospel is not just about each of us having better lives. He also sees the world around him, and he sees that the only reason that there's peace in his world is because the Roman Empire is so powerful, they're so authoritarian, that they suppress everyone else. And so there's peace. It's called Pax Romana. We even have a term for it. But he knows that's not a lasting peace. He knows even among his own people, the Jewish people, that they're just waiting for the moment to rebel. They're waiting for the moment to take back power. It's not real peace. But in the gospel, he sees the true hope for peace in the world. He sees the only hope. And so there's joy. Well, you know, we, we, we live in this world that is more about the self and about self-fulfillment, and, and we think that's where joy comes from. But I'm going to tell you that joy is temporary. In fact, it's not just temporary. It's It's limited. As I already talked about, when you have joy in others, your sources of joy are unlimited. If over the years, if you're a little bit older, if over the years you've been investing in so many people's lives, you know, dozens if not hundreds, then it just keeps coming back to you every time you hear about what God is doing in their lives. Every time you hear about what they continue to do in their faithfulness. Whether it's your own children or whether it's you know, people that, that you've met along the way that you, you've connected with, you have this, this deep reservoir of joy. And if you are continuing to invest in others, if you're continuing to, to reach out to others, mentor others, you know, lead others to Christ, you just keep adding to that. It's unlimited. And we know that it's also eternal because the gospel is the gospel of eternal life. So we know that, you know what? This is not just going to end when, when that former disciple you know, that, that I help lead to Christ or I help mentor that when, when they die, it's not over. It's eternal. There's joy even then. That's why 
Paul says those words that you know, we sung a couple weeks ago. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Paul finds joy in knowing that in the day of the Lord, all of these people are going to be there. Completed works. It's awesome. It's joy. And so that joy we come is not just from what we did in the past. It's what we're doing even now to invest in others. And then if our joy is only about self-fulfillment and not, not in the gospel, then we miss out on the unlimited, the unlimited joy we find in knowing that not just God will win, God has already won. And he, he didn't win in such a way that, that, he, that he wanted to like just conquer and oppress. He won in such a way that everyone can win. Everyone who will express faith in Jesus Christ, everyone who comes to repentance, they can all win too. There's, there's, there's nobody that's, that's excluded from this. There's joy. There's comfort in knowing that God has indeed won. Well, that's what Paul's showed us so far, and he's going to show us some more today. Just remember, he's under house arrest. Just remember, he's facing a potential death sentence. Just remember, he believes God's call on his life is to take the gospel throughout the entire world. And he already has plans to go on another trip. All of these things that could very well depress us. All of these things that could make us feel defeated. All of these things that could even make us doubt God. Doesn't do it for Paul. And it's because he has this joy. And so he says at the end of verse 18, he says... Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. At first you're like, oh, so Paul's saying like he's going to get out. And he's going to get out because you Philippians prayed for him. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Oh, wait a minute. When he was talking about deliverance, he wasn't necessarily talking about your prayers are going to get me out of prison. Because if that were the case, why did he say, whether by life or by death? But I want you to kind of back up to the main point. The main point isn't whether he's going to live or die. The main point is that he would not be ashamed. That with full courage, Christ will be honored in him. No matter what the situation. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. He's not ashamed. With full courage. 
He wants to know that whether he lives or dies, he will be able to stand before the Lord. It's kind of amazing. But you see, Paul gets it. Paul gets that if the gospel is just a message, then, hey, message delivered, let's all go our separate ways. But the gospel is more than a message. If it's just a message, we could just write it down and hand it to people. But Paul knows it's more than just a message. It's more than just words being put together. It has to do with what that message has done in your life. What that message has done in his life. Has it done what it said it would do? Has he been changed? Is he loving his enemies? Is he blessing those who persecute him? Is he forgiving those who don't deserve to be forgiven? See, we can't get out there and present the gospel and defend the gospel if the best evidence against the gospel is that it has done nothing to your life. You, it hasn't had any effect. You haven't been transformed. You, you, you may not hate your enemies, but you really don't love them. You, you know, you, know, you, you may be the kind of person that, that doesn't hold grudges. You know, I'm not going to hold a grudge, but I'm not going to make peace either. Has the gospel changed your life? Is it just words? You see, Paul says this changed my life because you know what? In every situation, whether this time is going to lead to my death or whether I'm going to be here for another year or whether I'm going to be set free, I will desire to honor Christ in all situations. Situations don't matter. They don't change how I, how I am and what my goal is, my objective is. It's like, can we say that? It's hard. And notice, he's not saying this after the, after the fact. He's not saying this after he's been released and looking back and saying, you know, I was willing to die. But, you know, God let me out, so it's cool. It's easy to say after the fact. But right there, in the middle of it, he's willing to entertain the thought that this might not end the way that some people might think it should end with him being free. Well, then he says that very famously quoted verse, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So he's saying, if it's up to me, I, I don't know. They're both good options, living or dying. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So he, he, he goes back. He goes back to, you know, live or die. And then finally he says, you know what? This is what I think is going to happen. I think even though I would rather die and be with Christ, I think I'm going to be set free. And I'm not going to be set free because I really want to be set free. I'm going to be set free because God isn't finished with my ministry to you. So I'm going to remain. And so we see two things here. First of all, we see that Paul's joy comes from knowing death means to be in the presence of Jesus. He knows it. He believes it. That's why he says, for me to die is, is gain. To depart and be with Christ. He says, I'm hard-pressed. It's a tough choice. But he says, it is far better. He said, it's a tough choice, but if I'm going to be honest with you, it is far better. Far better. So he has this joy that comes from knowing that even if what probably the Philippians thought was the worst, what they thought was the worst is that Paul would be executed, that they would never see him again. He's saying, that's not a cause of distress for me. Yeah, I love you guys. I want to see you. But if I die, I'm with Christ. I'm with the one who spoke to me directly on that Damascus road. And he believes it. And it brings him joy. But see, the other part of joy comes that even though he doesn't get to do what he thinks is far better, it comes because he's living for the spiritual lives of others. His continuation isn't for the extension of his own life. It's not, in a sense, even the extension of him being able to do like all the mission goals he might have. And again, we know he wants to go to Spain and we know he wants to take the gospel as far as he can. But it's not about that. It's because he, he sees what's going on in their lives and he, and he believes that God still has a role for him to play in their lives. And so he's willing to stay. He's willing to, to, to put off this union with Christ. He says, I want to remain in the flesh for your account. I want to make sure that you continue to grow, you progress, so that you might have this confidence that I have. You might have this steadfastness that I have. You might have this joy. So I'm going to be here. 
And I'm going to keep walking with you. And he knows that that it's not, you know, going to be a like an easy thing. There's a lot of times in life where, you know, the easier thing might be just to die. But when you live for others rather than just for yourself and you live for their their spiritual life, their spiritual growth, it, it's different. We, we were going to do a senior adult conference with Waterhouse and it was supposed to have been last week. I got the reminder on my calendar um, that, that it was supposed to have started. And we were going to have different speakers talk about different issues that come up for senior adults um, and also for those who, who give care to the elderly. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we needed to move it and hopefully we're going to be able to do it in, in June of next year. But one of the, um, one of the speakers was going to be speaking uh, on end-of-life issues. And, um, and particularly about euthanasia. And, you know, one of his points was that, that there is a certain level where, you know, if, if I have to choose between, you know, death right now, pain and suffering for a few weeks, few months, and then death, that if I just think about it from my perspective, you know, death right now sounds, sounds good. But one of the things that he brought out was this, this understanding that how we as believers face death, how we walk through those, those last days, even if they're painful, that how we face them is a witness to the people around us. It's not for our benefit that we live the more we grow as Christians, the more we mature, the more we realize that every breath given to us is not for ourselves, it's for others. And I'm not going to tell you that that resolves all the issues. But I think it's something we don't think about enough. Because we tend to think about it only from the perspective of what do I want? rather than the idea of Paul is bringing out. What about the spiritual lives of others? Well, then we see Paul say something that's very familiar. He wrote this uh, similar words in Ephesians, and when we talk next week, we're going to see even more how it connects to Ephesians. But he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so he, he, he tells him, I, I'm going to come see you. I'm confident that God is going to free me because there's still work to do. And I need to do it. I need to be there. But he says, let your lives be, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's trying to help them understand that there is joy that comes from living in unity with your brothers and sisters in every situation. After in the next two weeks, after this week, the next two weeks we're going to talk more about how Paul talks about church unity and the importance of church unity. But there's a joy that comes when we live life in unity with one another because it's more than just unity. Again, some people's idea of unity is, oh, absence of conflict. That's not unity. Unity has this this idea that he's, he's talking about here where he talks about where we stand firm in one spirit, that we're striving side by side for the faith, that it's, it's more than, oh, there's a, there's a lack of conflict. So much more. And so he's been, he's been modeling for them real joy up to this point. And he's been showing them how his concern is for them and not for himself, even though he's the one who's, who's in prison. He's the one who's facing death. And he's trying to model for them what he's going to teach them really soon. And he's, he's saying, as he said in Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live in a way worthy of the gospel. And worthy does mean unity, but it's more than unity. It's a unity that, that's held together by, by love. It's, it's sealed with, with, you know, I call it the mortar of church unity is humility. That we have... We, it doesn't mean that we're all the same. It doesn't mean that we all bite our tongues. That there's, that there's true joy. And he's helped us understand that. You see, because if, if you're part of a church for any period of time, then what should be in that church besides you are people who've invested in your life, mentored you, discipled you, and there should be people that you've invested in. And if that's the case, then there should just be joy in in seeing each other grow. I'm bringing joy to people who invested in my life. I'm receiving joy from those who I've invested in. And then I see us as a a church collectively. I I look at that and and I see the growth that takes place there. And that brings me joy. Again, this deep well of joy that can come. But we've unfortunately taken away that joy by making church something different. The more we make Christianity only about an individual relationship with Christ, the less importance we place on the joy that comes when we are truly a community of faith, when we're truly a family, 
When brother and sister is, is a term that, that means that we are that close. And our, our emphasis, especially in, in, in the United States, and especially among evangelicals, and especially in the 20th century, has been so much on the individual. And don't get me wrong. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. There's, that's, don't ever think I would ever say anything against that. You need to have that. But if your personal relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't lead you to a deeper, loving, joyful, peaceful, harmonious relationship with other believers in Jesus Christ, I'm not sure you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says it is a natural result of it. It is not optional. And the biggest problem we made in the 20th century was to make it optional. Being part of a church was optional. And then even if I am part of the church, how I engage in the church, it's optional. Everything was optional. Build your own faith. Build your own Christianity. And a lot of people that individually are really just devout in their prayer life and they're looking at God's Word, they don't connect with anybody else in the church. They have this great, you know, people talk about vertical relationship with Christ, but it hasn't led to deeper fellowship with each other. There's joy there. Paul wants them to know that joy. He wants us to know this joy. But don't miss what he says. And this is one of these times I'm glad the context is where it is. Not to say that this doesn't apply to us at some point. But look at what he says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Oh, joy, 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 suffer. Those don't go together, Paul. What's wrong with you? Joy goes with, you know, just happiness and comfort. No. This is why it's so important to understand what joy is and where it comes from. That if you truly have joy, you can have joy even in the midst of suffering. And he tells them, you're going to suffer. Again, contextually, I can't tell you that Paul's saying, we're going to suffer. We might. We might not. But he's telling them, you're going to suffer. And he would tell us, if God says, you will be suffering, then you need to be the same way. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. He tells them, it doesn't matter. In fact, he uses that term, he's granted to you. It's almost like he's like made a gift of suffering to them. He's granted to you. It's granted that you would suffer. 
And you might go like, well, you know, of the things God could give me, suffering's not anywhere near the top of my list. I like all those other things, you know, eternal life, joy, grace, you know, peace, grace, all that. That's good, but suffering. But Paul's trying to help them see what hopefully they see in his life. He is suffering, and yet he has joy. He is suffering, and yet he's concerned about others and not himself. He is suffering, and he's proclaiming the gospel more than most of us who've walked around free our entire lives. He, he's proclaimed the gospel more when he's under house arrest than just about anybody in history. He's showing them, look, what I'm talking about, it goes into all situations. And I guess that's the question we always have to ask ourselves. Do we have, do we have that joy? Do we have that joy that, that we know it's not fleeting? It doesn't come and go. And is that joy, you know, do we see evidence of that joy that when we hear that the gospel is being proclaimed, it brings us joy? When we, when we hear that people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, it brings us joy. When we hear about opportunities to serve and then we go and serve others, it brings us joy. When we, when we invest in other people's lives and we see them, them grow in their faith, it brings us joy. When we see the church becoming more loving and united, becoming closer to working together, cooperating better. When we see that, does it bring us joy? Do we have joy knowing that in every situation, whether we live or die or suffer or in times of blessing, that we will honor Christ in how we live. Do we know that? Do we know that with all confidence that in every situation our deep desire will be to honor Christ? And does that bring us joy? Well, I hope it does. I hope you know that. But if you don't, we know that this begins with true faith. It begins with faith in Jesus Christ. It begins in dying to self and, and, and saying, I'm going to trust only in you. It's not about me. It's not about my happiness. It's not about my comfort. It's about living for Jesus Christ. It's about allowing his spirit to come into my life and change me and transform me. See, if we, I don't know what's worse. I don't know if it's worse to not believe in Jesus at all and to not know the joy that comes or to halfway believe in Jesus and know about the joy 
but are unwilling to let go and receive it because we know it might cost us everything. I don't know what's worse. I just know this. If we want true joy, then it's surrender. It's surrender to Jesus Christ. It's faith. It's calling upon Him as not just Savior, but calling upon Him as Lord. And knowing that the, the path he, that He walked was a path that led to the cross. And that if we follow Him, our paths might lead in the same direction. Let's pray.